turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. We looked at the bigger picture from verses 2 through 16 last week. And uh, we want to look more closely today at verses 8 through 11. Hear the word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, What zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together for his help. Our God, we thank you for your grace and that you invite us to come to you. And you invite us, we who have no money, to come and buy from you, for you give freely. Lord, we spend uh, six days a week laboring, and it does not satisfy. But we thank you that you invite us to come to you and be filled, and that you promise to do that for us. You tell us and you invite us to incline our ear to you, to listen to you and delight in you. And so we desire to hear from you this morning. We desire for you to speak to our lives and to our hearts. We desire to be fed by you, to be nourished and refreshed. And we pray that your spirit would do this work through Jesus Christ. We ask in his name, amen. Well, many of you probably are familiar with the image in the Pilgrim's Progress of the man in the iron cage. Christian goes, and on his journey, he's shown a man who's locked up in an iron cage, and he's weeping because he is convinced that his heart is too hard and that he cannot repent of his sins and he can't find salvation. You may not know that many people believe that that man is based on a real person, the story of a a historical figure. And the man was named Francis Spira. And Spira was living in Italy in the middle of the 1500s. And so he uh, grew up like everyone there and then in the Roman Catholic Church. So he was a Catholic, but as the teachings of Luther and the Reformation were spreading, he heard the gospel. And so he claimed to have come to faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. And so he claimed to have become a believer. So he becomes a Protestant. But then uh, he starts to feel pressure from the Roman Catholic Church in Italy. Uh, He was very wealthy, and he had a family of nine kids. And so they start to pressure him financially that it would basically ruin his life to continue to be a Protestant. And so they pressure him into recanting his new faith in Jesus Christ. So he became a Protestant, but then he goes back to Roman Catholicism. But then, that's not the end of the story. After he turns back to Roman Catholicism, he seems to be heartbroken and grieved over the fact that he has renounced Christ and that he was ashamed of Christ before men. 
And so he's grieved about his denial of Christ, but he has convinced himself that there's no way for him to turn back to Christ. He's convinced himself that because he's denied Christ, he is a reprobate, that he is destined for hell. And so he spends the rest of his life basically torturing himself spiritually and emotionally over the fact that he can never become a true believer. Uh, His friends try to encourage him, his Christian friends, and they say things to him like, Spira, why don't you try praying and asking God to save you? And they told him to pray the Lord's Prayer, and, and he prays, Thy kingdom come, and he prays, Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come in my heart. And his friends say, "Uh, Spira, that that sounds like a Christian prayer. It sounds like you want to be saved. And he just responds and says, no, there's no way because my heart doesn't really mean it enough. My heart is not truly sincere. God's not going to save me anyway, even if I pray that. And so even though it seems as if he does desire salvation, he convinces himself he can't be saved. And so people said about him that as he was torturing himself, it was as if he was in hell even while he was alive. And eventually he was so depressed that he stopped eating and drinking and he just died a slow death. So that story of Francis Spira was written down and spread across Europe And the Puritans used that story a lot, like in Pilgrim's Progress, to warn people about hardening their hearts. Now, I tell you his story not to focus today on that issue of someone hardening their hearts, but to focus on Spira's repentance or lack of repentance. What was wrong with Spira was that, if you can say it this way, he focused too much on his repentance. He was too introspective, too self-absorbed. He constantly beat himself up over whether his repentance was good enough. And the message of the gospel is not to determine how good your repentance is. The gospel says, Christ is crucified and risen, look to Christ. And what Spira needed to do was not try to determine if his heart was sorry enough. He just needed to look to Christ. And so his problem was that he continued over and over to focus too much on the strength or the weakness of his repentance. And I wanted to start this way because we are going to look at this passage that is all about repentance. And it's written mainly to Christians that that we need to have true repentance in our lives. But the danger that we can have is that we would walk away from a passage or a sermon like this and say, well, my repentance isn't very good. That's not good. What do I do? I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to repent more. That's not going to work. And so the point of this passage, yes, is to get us to make sure that we have true repentance. But the solution is to look to Christ. The solution is stop focusing on yourself and your weakness and how you aren't repenting enough and instead go to Christ. So we'll come back to that, hopefully, Lord willing, at the end. But keep that in mind. Today we're going to talk about true and false repentance. And we do need to know what real repentance looks like. We need to know because we have an enemy, Satan, and he desires to keep you from repentance. Satan has some tricks some schemes for you. His first scheme is to get you to sin. 
And so he will sugarcoat the bitter pill of sin to make it look like candy to try to get you to swallow it. He will put the bait on the hook to try to get you to bite. But after Satan gets you to sin, he has another trick. He wants to keep you from repenting. He wants to, if we can change the metaphor, invite you into his house, but then he won't let you out. He won't let you return to Christ. And so he has all kinds of ways to trick you, to make you even feel that you have repented and to think that you've repented, but still you're staying in his house. You're still doing exactly what he wants. Satan wants to keep you from repenting after you sin. And he's going to give you all kinds of ways to falsely repent. The adversary, the enemy, is so strong that it requires Christ to have true repentance. You remember Peter in Luke chapter 22? When Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him three times, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan got Peter to bite the hook, to swallow the pill. He got Peter to sin. But after Peter sinned, he repented. And Jesus says the reason that he repented is because Jesus prayed for him. Judas sinned. Satan entered into Judas. Satan got Judas to bite the hook. Judas was sorry for his sin, but he did not truly repent. He went and hanged himself. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Jesus prayed for Peter. The enemy is so powerful in keeping you from true repentance that we need the, pray, the prayers and the power of Christ to give us true repentance. So may Christ help us to understand true repentance this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to go through these uh, four verses. I'm going to just explain them in, in their context of Paul writing to the Corinthians. And then uh, secondly, at the, the second half of the sermon, we're going to look at nine ways that are false repentance. So let's start by looking at verses 8 through 11. First in verse 8, Paul is referencing the letter that he wrote to them. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. So remember, Paul wrote a letter to them that uh, some people call the letter of tears. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I wrote a letter with much anguish of heart and with many tears. He was pointing out their sin, calling for their repentance. Some people call it the severe letter because here in verse 8, he says, I made you grieve with my letter. He said some really hard things. He was very direct about their sin. He wanted to hit the mark. He wanted to say what needed to be said, but he also didn't want to needlessly hurt them. Just like a pastor doesn't want to confront sin to, for the sake of hurting people or just making them feel bad. It's just because we feel the need to point out sin when it is there. And it's not pleasant, but it's necessary. And so Paul says, I made you grieve with my letter. And he says, I don't regret it. I don't regret that that, that thing needed to be said. And he says, though I did regret it. I did wonder, Paul says, when I wrote the letter, if I had said what needed to be said, if maybe I was too harsh 
or if, if what I said was going to hit the mark and have an effect. So he did regret it, but he doesn't regret it because he knows it was the right thing. And so he says, I see that the letter grieved you. It hit the mark. It catalyzed. It brought to life repentance on the Corinthians' part. Then he says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So he uh, is glad, he is happy, thankful that the letter had its effect and that they were grieved, but that it produced the purpose of repentance. Some people like to unload and uh, vomit with their words and shoot and attack with their words just to let you know all the bad things that you've done. They want you to sit there and just listen as you go detail by detail into the past, the far distant past, all the way up till now. Here are all the terrible things that you've done. Here's how bad it made me feel. And I just want you to know how bad it made me feel because I want you to feel bad. That's what people are like. But that's sinful, and that's not what Paul is like. Paul says, I say what I need to say, I hit the mark because I want it to accomplish the purpose of your repentance. It's not so I can feel better about myself to unload all of my past hurts. But I care about you and your repentance. And so that's what Paul did. It led to their repentance and he says this is a godly grief. A grief that is according to God, the right kind of grief. It leads to repentance. So they suffered no loss. So this was good for them that they experienced this. Then in verse 10, he tells us more about this grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to death, that leads to salvation, sorry. Uh, Repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So grief that is godly according to God leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. Worldly grief produces death. So again, we can use the illustrations of Peter and Judas. Peter's godly grief led to his repentance and salvation. Judas had a worldly kind of grief, the kind of grief that the world has, and it led to his death. The world can grieve. There is a kind of feeling bad about your sin. There is a way that you can feel bad about your sin and feel sorrow for sin, but not actually repent. And that just produces death. True repentance leads to salvation. In Acts 11, verse 18, they're talking about the Gentiles and how they received the gospel and they were granted a repentance that leads to life. Repentance leads to life. He says repentance leads to salvation. How are we saved? Well, salvation is by faith alone. It is in Christ alone. Christ saves us. He saves us through faith. Faith is not the work that you do that saves you. Faith is the gift of God to give you an uh, an instrument, a channel or a pipe through which you can receive the salvation of Christ himself. That's what it means to be saved. But with faith, is attached a necessary part, which is repentance. You cannot have true faith if you don't have repentance. Repentance means you turn away from sin. 
And so it's just logical. It makes sense. If you are going to turn to Christ for salvation, you have to turn away from something. And you're turning away from sin to Christ. So it can't be that you say, I am turning to Christ, but I won't turn from my sin. But it's not your turning from sin in itself that saves you. It is Christ who saves you as you turn to him in faith. So this is what he means when he says repentance leads to salvation. It's because repentance is a necessary part of faith. It's like a two-sided coin. Faith on one side, repentance on the other. Christ saves when we turn to him in faith and repentance and so worldly grief produces death godly grief produces salvation worldly grief produces death it produces death because people don't repent because people without christ can't change and so if you can't change you continue to sin you continue to produce death The wages, the result of sin, is death. So here you are, you sin, you feel bad about your sin, but there's nothing you can do about it. And so all you do is continue to sin, and continue to sin, and continue to sin, and each sin mounts up for you more and more death. Someone said that worldly grief is Drowning yourself in your own tears. You have tears, feeling bad. But there's nothing you can do to get out of the the pool that you're in. You're just sitting there. You can't get up. You can't change your sin. All you can do is add more and more and more tears. And the tears rise. The water rises. And it drowns you. Worldly grief is drowning yourself in your own tears. Well, we're going to focus on the application of what those two are, godly grief and worldly grief, uh, in a few minutes. But first, verse 11, he goes on, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So he says there at the beginning that godly grief produces earnestness. Earnestness is eagerness, a desire to do the right thing and to make things right. It produces a desire to fix the problem. Worldly grief doesn't do that, as we're going to see. It produces earnestness earnestness it produces eagerness to clear yourselves he doesn't mean here self-defense i want to clear my name no they're clearing themselves means they recognize that they have a debt they wronged paul and they need to clear that debt they need to make right the wrong that they have done to paul and so they are eager to fix the problem they're eager to make things right they have indignation indignation towards your sin have you ever been mad about your sin have you ever thought why was i so dumb how could i be so foolish why did you do that and someone comes up to you and says why did you do that and you say i don't know i don't know why i did that and you have indignation towards your sin what fear Talking about the fear of God. Recognizing that the judgment of God comes because of sin. That's a part of godly grief. What longing. Longing for Paul. Longing to make things right in their relationship. What zeal for Paul. And what punishment. They were willing to accept punishment and to enforce whatever punishment needed to be enforced for the sin. Actually, if you remember back in chapter 2, this man who had attacked Paul, they had punished him 
And Paul says the punishment by the majority is enough. You need to turn and comfort him. Maybe they went too far. Maybe they were really harsh in their punishment as a result of getting Paul's letter. And so Paul is at least pointing out, well, your desires were good to recognize that this sin needs to be punished. So this is what godly grief produces. Uh, The rest of our time for the sermon, we want to just apply this in in real life, in, in our situations, in our life. What does it look like to have false repentance or a worldly grief that produces death? Uh, Now, it's a lot easier to talk about false repentance than it is to talk about true repentance. Because true repentance is one thing. There's only one way to truly repent. And the way to truly repent is to not do all the false ways. So it's, it would be like uh, if I asked you to sign a piece of paper, put your signature on a piece of paper. And then I asked everyone else to forge your signature, to have a false signature. It would be a lot easier to describe the real signature. I'd say, well, it looks like that. But if I could look at all your forgeries, I could point out how they're forgeries. I could say, well, this person made this long line here, and this person made a tiny letter over there, and, and right, you could just go on and on talking about all the ways that they did it wrong. And there's only one right way. And so that's what it's like with repentance. There are lots of ways to do it wrong, and there's only one way to get it right. And so we're going to talk today about nine ways to falsely repent. Nine ways to get it wrong. And what we're going to do is we're going to come up with a fictional scene, a case study. And so I assure you that this is fictional. It's not about you. Any resemblance to actual facts in life are the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Uh, It is not me trying to tell your life story In a fictional scene, okay? So let's come up with this fictional scenario. There's a woman named Lisa. Lisa is sitting with her friend Sue. And Lisa says to Sue, Did you hear about Maggie? Maggie's Lisa's friend. And Maggie said, Sue says, No, I didn't hear about Maggie. What happened? And Lisa says, Oh, we really need to pray for her. She's really having a hard time. Oh, really? What's going on? Sue says. Lisa says, Well, Maggie's been really depressed lately. And she told me the other day that she started drinking every night. And so we really need to pray for her. And Sue says, Oh, I can't believe that. Maggie would do something like that. I'm so sorry. Thank you for for telling me that. Well, what's just happened? Lisa has gossiped. Lisa has gossiped about Maggie. Gossip is a sin. Well, as it usually happens, uh, Sue, the one who heard the gossip from Lisa, Sue is talking to Maggie one day, and she lets on that she knows about Maggie's drinking problem. Now, Maggie has been drinking. That is true. It wasn't a lie on Lisa's part. She wasn't just making something up or exaggerating. It was completely true. But it wasn't Lisa's place to share Maggie's problem with Sue. And so when Maggie hears Lisa, uh, you know, how, how did you know about this? It must have been Lisa because she's the only person I told. Maggie is very upset. This is hurting their relationship, hurting their friendship. Maggie shared something private and personal that she didn't want, want shared with other people. And Lisa gossiped 
about her friend. And by the way, we're not talking here about a situation like in Matthew 18, where Lisa hears about a sin and she goes and confronts her friend. And then if her friend doesn't, is not believing that she's in sin, then in Matthew 18, you take someone along, like preferably an elder, someone who is, can keep things confidential. You take someone along to share, uh, you know, that you need to rebuke someone of their sin. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about someone sharing personal information. So Maggie is upset. She goes to Lisa and she says, I can't believe that you gossiped about me. I trusted you. I shared this private information with you. Now, Lisa has sinned. Lisa has the chance now to repent. Here are nine ways Lisa can not handle this the right way. So first, by the way, these are in your outline. Uh, so you can just kind of keep track of the outline in the bulletin. First, Lisa could be in denial about her sin. Lisa might think that she really didn't do anything wrong. So she says to Maggie, I wasn't gossiping about you. It's true, isn't it? Gossip is only sharing things that aren't true about someone. That's denying sin. That's redefining sin. She says, I was just sharing a prayer request with my friend. I had a burden on my heart for you that I needed to unburden on someone else. And uh, we're the church. We're not supposed to have secrets in the church. Can you say, she's saying, not a sin. Or she might say, well, Maggie, you know that I have a good heart. You know that my intentions are good. So this is another way to deny sin. You, you think that you have good intentions. That doesn't mean it's not sin, though. She might say, well, Maggie, I know lots of horrible people, and they say all kinds of horrible things about their friends. I've heard them talk. I'm not like that. And here she's again denying sin. I didn't sin because I judge sin on a grading curve, on a scale, and I'm not like other people. So in all these kinds of ways, people deny their sin. Paul, though, says about himself in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. And he wasn't using that as an excuse. He was saying, yeah, I sinned. I sinned ignorantly. People can sin while even not realizing that they are sinning. You can sin ignorantly. And so the remedy for that is the law of God. We always need to go back to the word of God and the law of God. Romans 3 verse 20 says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. You need to know the law of God so that you know what sin actually is. You don't get to redefine sin. You don't get to redefine words in the Bible. We don't redefine gossip or lust or the definition of drunkenness. Sin is sin according to what God says in his law. It doesn't matter if everybody does it. It doesn't matter if there are worst people. The, the world's evaluation of whether something is sin or not is not the determinant of sin. It's the law of God. So Lisa failed the first time by denying that she had actually sinned. Well, here's the second way. Lisa might know that she sinned, but she minimizes her sin. She'll say, oh, it's no big deal. Or she might say, well, I know I'm not perfect. When people say, I know I'm not perfect, you know what that means? It means you're the problem. It's your fault for expecting me to be perfect. How can you expect me to be perfect? And it's all a way to say, let's put the blame over here. Let's take it off of what I did. Let's focus on your expectations. I'm not perfect. Or she might say, well, think of all the good things I've done for you. 
I've been such a good friend. As if you can do lots of good things that can just make the sin less hurtful or less important. So, she's trying to make sin less of a sin. She might say, well, uh, at least I didn't tell about all those other things that I know about you. And again, that's minimizing sin by saying, I could have sinned a lot more, and I didn't. And so we need to focus on the one thing that you have done. If I have done something, I need to take responsibility for that one thing and recognize that it is actually a sin. And so not only do I need the law of God to define for me what sin is, but then we need to understand what sin means. The gravity, the seriousness of our sin. We have broken the laws of the holy God. We have offended the God who made us, who redeems us. All of our sin brings the wrath of God and our sin nails Jesus to the cross. And so even what you might think is a tiny thing is serious in the eyes of God and you need to own that. And so true repentance is sorrow for sin. Not only that, but it includes sorrow, godly grief. In Psalm 38, verse 13, he says, I am sorry. I am sorrowful for my sin. That's what we need to say. I am sorry. I feel awful because I have sinned. Not look at all the good things I've done for you. In Acts 2, verse 37, they were cut to the heart when they heard the preaching of the law and the gospel. They were cut to the heart. That's how we need to feel when we recognize that we've sinned against the law of God. So don't deny your sin. Don't minimize your sin. Third, Lisa could feel bad that her words got out and that she's been caught. So in this situation, Lisa doesn't actually think that she's done anything wrong. The bad part is that Maggie heard about what she did. It's not what she said. It's the fact that it hurts Maggie and that she got caught. She might think, oh, no, I've been uh, caught out. Now people are going to think badly about me. Maggie is not going to be happy with me. She might feel bad about sin, but she's not truly sorry for the sin itself. She just feels bad that she got caught. So think about Jacob. When Jacob uh, tricks Isaac and he gets the blessing that Esau was supposed to get, uh, Jacob knows that he's been caught. And guess what he does? He just runs away. Jacob never apologizes. He never acknowledges that he's done wrong. Uh, later on, he's going to meet Esau, and he's afraid that Esau is going to kill him because Esau has been trying to kill him for years because Jacob never tried to make it right. He knew he had got caught, so he ran away. But then Jacob goes, and he doesn't stop his trickery. He continues his life of deceiving people like his uncle Laban. And so uh, we can feel bad that we get caught and still continue in sin. So the solution here is to live in the fear of God. Whenever you sin, you've been caught because God sees you. Hebrews 4.13 says, All are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees what we do. And so we need to feel sorrow for sin because God's already caught us, not because other people catch us or not. Number four, Lisa can blame others for her sin. She might blame Sue. Well, Sue kept asking and she kept pushing for more and more details. And I, I was put in an awkward situation and I didn't want to be rude to Sue. And so it is Sue's fault. Of course, this is what Adam did when he 
uh, ate the fruit from the tree. He blames his wife, Eve. Uh, Moses does the same thing in Deuteronomy 4.21. This is such a funny but sad verse. He says, The Lord was angry with me because of you and did not allow me into the promised land. He blames Israel for why he can't go into the promised land. No mention of striking the rock. Moses was angry and he struck the rock when God told him not to. And that's why God says you can't enter the promised land. But he blames the people because the people made him angry. They, they made his fuse really short. And so he says, it's because of you I couldn't go into the promised land. But true sorrow for sin and repentance is responsibility. David says when he commits the census sin, he says, behold, I have sinned, period. You don't have to say anything else. You don't have to say the circumstances, the temptations, the influences of other people. Just say, yes, I sinned. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. We are responsible to judge ourselves truly. So she blames. Number five, she could feel bad that she gossiped, but just feel bad, just feel sorry for sin and not do anything about it. So Lisa says, Maggie, I'm sorry. I feel bad that I did that. Have you ever had people apologize like that to you? Or have you done that to other people? Kids? Kids, do you do that to your parents? I'm sorry. I feel bad about that. That's not an apology. That's not repentance. That's what Judas did. Judas felt bad. He felt sorrow. But instead of going back to the disciples and confessing and apologizing and seeking to make it right somehow in whatever way that he could, he goes and he hangs himself. His sorrow for sin doesn't lead him to repentance. So this is what we call legal repentance. Knowing that you've broken the law of God, feeling bad about it, but not doing anything to change or doing anything about it. Number six, Lisa might regret the consequences and so she tries to stop. She tries to stop gossiping because of the consequences. She liked having Maggie as her friend, and she knows that now it's not going to be a good friendship, and so she's going to do better because of the effect of the sin. But David in Psalm 51 says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David's sin had consequences for Bathsheba, for Uriah, for his own family. But he says, God, I have sinned against you. What's bad about sin is not the consequences for your sin. That is part of the bad thing, but it's not the main thing. Recognize your sin against God. David repents because he realizes he sinned. Not because it hurts people or because it makes his life harder. Number seven, Lisa could have a short-lived repentance. So, what if Lisa says, Maggie, I'll never gossip again. But two weeks later, she does it again. She says, I promise I'll do better. You know what I promise I'll do better means? It means I don't really know what I'm going to do. I don't have a plan. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to tell you I promise I do better. And so that doesn't work. It doesn't actually change anything. There needs to be humility that there's a real problem, that there's a pattern of sin, that sin needs to be dealt with, that there's a plan, commitment, accountability, prayer about how to, quote, 
do better? How are you going to change? What commitments are you going to make to change? Now, of course, you and I, we always live in the Romans 7 life of always struggling with sin in our flesh. But at the same time, we are the new creation. We are to put off the old self and put on the new self. How does that happen? It's by putting sin to death through the power of the Spirit, through prayer, through the church, through the teaching of God's word, help from other people. You're not going to just do better next time if you have no plan to change anything about your life. And yet this is what people do when they fall into sin. I'll just try again next time, knowing that in two weeks I'm going to do exactly the same thing. Number eight, Lisa doesn't deal with her heart. What if Lisa actually did stop gossiping for the rest of her life? She never says a word that is private information of others. But she just replaces that sin with many other sins. What if Lisa still loves to listen to other people's gossip? What if she wants to know all of Maggie's juicy secrets, not because she cares about Maggie, but because she has a pride problem. She wants to know everything about people's lives. She feels superior always hearing about other people's problems that she doesn't have. So you see, Lisa might, might keep the words in her mouth and keep her lips sealed, but she hasn't dealt with sinful problems in her heart. But Jesus tells us that it's out of the heart that all of these filthinesses come from, all of these sinful actions and thoughts. And that's what we need to deal with for true repentance. Last one, Lisa won't fix the situation. Lisa says, okay, I've done wrong. I know that I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. But let's just, let's just move on now. She won't go back to Sue and apologize to Sue and recognize that she's sinned against Maggie. She won't admit to her that she did something wrong. She, she won't work to restore what she's done. She expects the friendship to go back to normal right away. She says things like, well, I said I was sorry. What more do you want from me? What we want from you is to fix this. Can you imagine a murderer saying to the family of those he murdered, I said I'm sorry. What do you want from me? We want justice. Fix this as much as you can. You need to pay for your crime, murderer. And when you and I sin against others, we need to go and we need to make it right. What more do you want? We want justice. Because God is a God of justice. And so Zacchaeus, when he becomes a believer, his repentance is that he goes and he restores four times, which is even more than justice, four times what he had stolen from others. Zacchaeus knows true repentance means I've stolen from people and I need to go and make it right. I can't just say, hey everybody, I'm sorry, don't ask for anything more. True repentance is doing what you can to fix the situation. So, nine ways to not repent. Here's what Lisa should have said. Maggie, I'm so sad that I did this. I'm so sorry. I sinned against you and I sinned against God. I can see how that hurt you. And if you don't want to share things with me anymore, I accept that because I've broken your trust. She's accepting the consequences. She says, I'm going to go and I'm going to make this right with Sue. Try to fix this. And I recognize that I have a problem with gossip and I need to deal with this sin. 
So I'm going to ask people for accountability and prayer for me and help to fight this sin because I never want to do this to you again. Maggie, will you please forgive me? That is godly sorrow that produces repentance. That's what we should say to others. That's what we should say to God and be willing to live out. So for us who are followers of Christ, uh, we need to repent of our repentance. Our repentance is worldly so many times and shallow. But remember again, Francis Spira. Don't just feel bad about your repentance. Condemn yourself. But Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that he may heal us. He wounds us that he may bind us up. So if you are aware of false repentance in your life, the solution is not to sit there drowning in your metaphorical tears. But God wants to heal you, bind you up. Go to him. Go to Christ. Christ died for all of our sins. And so we can acknowledge all of our sins before him. And we can know that Christ died even for our false repentance. And find his grace. Let's go to him. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your word and the unbending law of your word, your directions that you set forth to teach us, Lord, how we might rightly come to you and repent of our sins and repent of our sins against others. Lord, we pray that you would by your Holy Spirit, teach us more and more what true repentance looks like. Keep us from the deceit of Satan who wants to keep us locked up in his grip with these ideas of false repentance. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your grace even when our tears do not flow enough. We are not zealous enough to kill our sin. Give us your grace. And then, by your Spirit, help us to seek you more. We pray in Jesus' name.